Welcome to Sigma Sports Presents Matt Stevens Unplugged. And this is the Joe Dombrowski episode. Oh, no. Right, Joe Browski. <laughs> oh, let's leave that in. This is the Joe Dombrowski episode. Well, what can I tell you about Joe? Well, he's a top pro rider who's ridden for some of the biggest teams in the World Tour. He's a native of Marshall in Virginia, a tiny place that I struggled to research for the hometown quiz. But he now lives in Nice in France, and we chat about the differences, the cultural ones between Europe and the United States. And Joe shares an absolutely incredible story about the time. Listen to this. He stole Barack Obama's M&Ms. You do not want to miss this one, folks. So kick off your Wellington boots, pop your Mac on the coat rack, find a comfortable couch, chalange or beanbag, sit back and enjoy the pod. You know it's that time again. Podcast. Joe Dombrowski is one of the hardest working riders in the peloton, and his teammates from UAE Team Emirates last season would certainly back that up. At the time of our chat, he was about to sign for Astana and couldn't quite make the announcement just yet. So we discussed how he got hooked on cycling by racing his mountain bike as a kid, and how having fun within the racing environment has been a top priority since his time with Axel Merckx's development team. But what happened when he boarded Air Force One during the Obama administration? Did he try on the president's jacket in order to steal his M&Ms? Only one way to find out, folks. Check it out. Well, Joe Dombrowski, I think I got that right. Uh, we did warm up before we came on in terms of getting the pronunciation right. Uh, mate, thank you so much for giving up your time to come on uh, the Matt Stevens podcast, mate. Um, how the devil are you? Yeah, I'm doing well. Uh, I'm at home in Nice right now. Uh, did a long ride with um, Larry Warbass from who you oh, yeah. may know from AG2R. Uh, rode with him today, hanging out, kind of, uh, you know, sort of feeling, I suppose, a bit lethargic after the, the Vuelta, sort of that post-Grand Tour uh, slump. But yeah, yeah, keeping on. Well, could you, I know you just described very well where you are, obviously you're in Nice, but could you describe, I've I've seen a little bit of a window into your computer setup and, and maybe we'll talk about the quality of your microphone shortly, but can you describe for people listening um, the room in which you're in and if you can see out of any windows just to kind of set the scene? Uh, yeah, so we're actually in the second bedroom of our apartment here, which serves more as my wife's office than as a guest room. We do have guests, but and they, they stay here, but typically it's my wife working here. Um, she is, uh, at the moment doing a bit of freelance. Um, she was working actually in EF oh, yeah. with the team when I was there. Um, we didn't meet in EF, but she was there for a couple of years and now she's kind of doing some freelance sort of, uh, videography, photography, media in the cycling world. Um, okay. So this is all her equipment and setup. Um, but yeah, I can see on our, I've got a window looking on our garden in the back. Um, and yeah. Okay. Well, um, Joe, why, why have you chosen to, to live in Nice and how long have you been there for? So I've actually lived my whole career here. Uh, you know, my, I, my first team was Sky. Um, yeah. And I didn't really have so much direction as as to where I was going to base myself in Europe. Um, 
if I was left to my own devices, I I would imagine perhaps I would have ended up in Girona because there's so many Americans there and there's, you know, a lot of English speaking riders and they they seem to gravitate there. Um, in the past, actually, Nice, there was a, quite a, a core group of Americans in Nice um, in kind of like the Lance, uh, Bobby Julik era. Um, and then, you know, partway through their career, they went to Girona and Actually, then when I came here initially in 2013, uh, uh, it was me and Ian Boswell. And then from there, actually, we had another kind of group wave of Americans like myself, Ian, Larry Warbass, uh, TJ Van Garderen, Will Barda, yeah. Matteo Jorgensen. Um, I'm probably leaving some people out, but we, we <laughs> kind of had a, a bit of a crew here. Um, and yeah, I, you know, to be honest... I, I actually really struggled the first couple of years being in Europe, um, you know, on my own. And it's one of those things that like outside of the race can be just a, a bit of an extra stress, particularly I think for riders that are non-European, um, sure. you know, because we're so far from, from home and you, you kind of start, start with that at a really young age. Uh, and then over time I've just sort of grown to love it. Um, you know, uh, from a cycling standpoint, it's it's amazing. Like Nice kind of sits in this four-kilometer plane, um, and then you have the Maritime Alps directly behind. So yep. despite the fact that it's, I think it's the fifth largest city in France, um, and, you know, you've got all the kind of bustling and going on of a city, you can quite quickly get out to really remote areas. Um, and we have a lot of long climbs. Normally the weather is quite good all year long. Uh, the airport is really close and um, normally there's quite a lot of easy flights uh, to race and training camp locations. Um, and yeah, I've just, just grown to really love it. And I kind of uh, set up shop here at the beginning of my career and I've stayed here ever since. And um, now my wife and I live here and we spend, I would say, 10 months of the year here. Um, right. Okay. So pretty much all the season. Um, and then we will go back to the U S a lot of times like October, November timeframe, um, catch up with family and friends. And, but for the rest of the year, we're really pretty much here. Yeah. I mean, could, I know skipping ahead now, cause mm -hmm. you're obviously you're only, you're only kind of 30 years of age, but can you, do you see yourself going back and living in the U S or can you see a future in France or another part of Europe? I mean, not that you've got a crystal ball. I mean, how kind of settled are you? Can you can you see kind of uh, staying here and maybe just going back? Uh, or would you like, do you think, to head back to the States at some point? You know, actually, my, I've thought about that a lot. And my wife and I talk about it a lot, just sort of, you know, from a speculative standpoint. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think we could probably do either. Um, you know, she, like, before she was working in EF and it was... It, somewhat convenient actually because she could kind of she was going back and forth between boston um she was living in boston for a little while and their office was there uh but then she could also be a niece in between races um and now she's doing a bit of freelance work um and europe is actually f for her fairly convenient for that um at least within the cycling industry uh between her and me, like we have a lot of contacts and she started to kind of grow that business. Um, yeah. and then 
I suppose really then it falls more to to me like what I would do um, after being a bike rider, which at this point I don't know yet. Um, sure. And I, it's it's hard to say. I suspect for me there would probably be more opportunities in the U.S., but you never know yeah. really. And to be honest, from like a lifestyle standpoint, we really we just enjoy being here. Um, yeah. And yeah, I mean, it's like there's little bits and pieces of both being in the States and being here in Nice that we enjoy. Um, but if, if you had to ask me now, which I prefer, I would probably say that we prefer being in Nice, but I suppose it'll just come down to kind of what sort of opportunities lie ahead when that time comes. Um, sure. I mean, I bought a home here, I guess four or five years ago now. And it's like, right. I don't, even if I go back to the States, I don't really intend on selling it. And just from the standpoint of like, I love this area so much. It's somewhere I'd always like to come back to. And yeah. um, I knew it would kind of say, for example, like buying a home, it would kind of serve as a place for me to live during my cycling career. But I also knew that um, the place, had. It, it's funny because it was really a full 180 from going to, in, in the first couple of years, it was like, kind of really a struggle for me to be here to where now it's like, I, I feel that even if um, I'm not racing anymore and we were back stateside, I feel that I would always kind of want to come back. Sure. Sure. What's, I mean, before we kind of rewind and go right back to the beginning of your kind of formative years on the bike, what's the one big thing that you miss about the U S what's the thing that you kind of crave, although you've clearly very, very happy and settled in Europe. What, what's the thing that you kind of, hanker for back in the US? Hmm. I mean, obviously the one thing that I can't uh, put in my suitcase and take with me is family and friends. And right. I, I've got friends here and it's a, it's a different set of friends, um, which who I appreciate just as much as my friends in the US. But of course, um, you know, family and friends uh, for probably the majority of my kind of social network is still based stateside. Um, so I suppose I missed that aspect. Um, in terms of American culture, you know, hmm, it's hard, to, <laughs> it's hard to put, put a finger on. I, I suppose yeah. one thing is, you know, in the U S everything's really easy. And part of that may right. be my own personal bias because I'm American. So it, it seems easier, but I think, I think even without that bias, it's probably accurate. Like, I mean, anything you want, anytime, you can kind of get it and get it done in the US. And it's like a very efficient system, I feel, for the yeah. most part, um, yeah. which is maybe a little bit less so the case in France. Um, yeah. I, I think that's fair to say. I think that's fair to say. Is, is that accurate? I think so, yeah. I think it's the same in... Um, because I, I spent three years when I was um, in my early 20s living in Paris and, and racing, um, wanting to turn pro. And I, I loved it and learned another language and the culture was great. Um, but yeah, getting things done was kind of different. And then um, then I spent a lot of time in Italy as well. And um, although I love Italy, like getting things done in Italy and is kind of complicated sometimes. But therein lies that maybe part of the charm of it, that there isn't kind of, I think sometimes the getting things easily 
is great, but also there's a kind of weird sterility to that. And um, I don't know what it, there's nothing kind of wrong with it, but when you are in a country where you kind of have to work hard to find something or get something done, there's a kind of weird satisfaction to finally you do it. And it's just, they are, I think Europe and, and America, uh, both countries, or both, sorry, not, not countries, obviously I love Europe. Um, but America's so different, but, but Europe is kind of, the mainland is kind of, um, yeah, they're kind of Latin countries and, and France, Things aren't quite as efficient, but I kind of like that. I like the, I like to escape from the efficiencies of the UK sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> well, you know I, I don't know who said it, but someone told me once something to the effect of like, I want to earn my paycheck in a capitalist country and I want to spend my time in a socialist country, which I sort that, of feel that, 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 that like- That kind of makes a lot of sense. A lot, I like that. I, yeah, no, definitely. I mean, because actually from, I, I feel from a lifestyle perspective, uh, France, Italy, Spain, like they're, it's quite good. Yeah. You know, and I, I think people are, I don't know, maybe happier. I don't know. Yeah. I could be wrong. It's a difficult, I, I don't, I know you, there are metrics out that you can actually, that there are countries and places that um, are supposed to be the kind of happiest, but I don't know how kind of accurate that is. But but, but when you go away some, from, from somewhere to decompress, especially the pace of modern life and the uh, easy access to kind of information and we're all attached to our phones, whether we like it or not, I guess, aren't we? Um, we kind of have to be connected. Um, mm. You know, being connected is great, but it isn't kind of what we were kind of rigged up to do as human beings. We, we were kind of rigged up to kind of just meander around and hunt and kind of procreate, maybe obviously communicate a bit, but the kind of pace of change is kind of overwhelming, isn't it? So to detach yourself from life sometimes and go to something that's slower paced is something we all crave, isn't it? And and to have that as a lifestyle objective is something maybe that would at the back of everybody's minds as you, you kind of head near retirement and just want things to slow down a bit. Yeah. And actually, you know, like, around the area I grew up in Virginia, uh, there's some pretty rural areas and uh, there's not always the best cell phone service. And it's interesting. There's actually, I, I feel in part because um, they don't want a flood of remote workers with the kind of boom of remote working and they kind of want to keep it small town. But um, there's almost like a fight to keep bad cell phone service. <laughs> because <laughs> like that, they, yeah. they don't really want like to be car, connected. Like to <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, it's uh, it's it it is it is intriguing. But no, I'm glad I'm I'm kind of happy that you settled. It's a beautiful part of the world. The weather's kind of great. You're not far from Italy. And uh, oh, sorry, Joe. There's a bit of a funny sound going on. What's what, what on earth? Alert. What? <laughs> oh no! Alert. It right. is time for a random question. Yeah, really sorry about that, Joe. Um, as me. part of my, yeah, I mean, as part, I just had to set this in a bit of context. As part of my deal with Sigma Sports, they installed a kind of circa 1982 uh, Russian computer in my loft. And it every sounded now and again, like dial up internet. Do you remember dial up? I, I also do, yeah, yeah. It's like it's, you would, uh, okay, I'm going to load this email. I'll come back after dinner is done. <laughs> Exactly. Well, actually, this is actually printed off a fax for me. So I'm just going to walk across the room and just tear this off. Um, and I've never seen this question before. It is a random, randomly generated question. Um, okay. There we go. Right. Okay, Joe, here we go. This is from the random question generator. What is something you've done, felt, or seen that you wish you could experience again for the first time? So what mm. would you, yeah, that's what a great question. So what is something you've done, felt, or seen that you'd wish you could do again? Good uh, question. That's tricky, but actually, 
I'm going to go with, uh, and, and it, I'm reminded of this because it, my, I feel that Europeans are really fascinated with the kind of, maybe this is my biased opinion, but like the sort of like a might of American sort of politics and military and whatever. Sure. Um, I get that. Yeah. And uh, we were talking at the Vuelta. It was in the last week um, at the dinner table. And somehow it came up that uh, I suppose it was four or five years ago. Um, I got to tour Air Force One. Like, you know, the plane right. that the, pres- wow, the that- president goes on. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And okay, so technically it's not Air Force One because the president's not on it. So it's only Air Force One if the president's on it. But ah, okay. uh, you know, there's the two big planes, um, and but but so basically, the president, any plane he's on is Air Force One. But there's the two main ones which you see, you know, when it's on the news, um, sure. and one of those was in the hangar, uh, and I got to take a tour of that. It was sort of like a a friend of a friend who um, was a cyclist, and he was really keen to. Um, because I grew up not so far from the DC area. Um, he was really keen to bring me on. Um, and it was, it was actually fascinating. I have to say like, I mean, there were so many cool things. Like, for example, did you know (laughs) that I believe it's the only place in the world where you can find red, white, and blue peanut M&Ms and they have the presidential seal on the back. That alone is it's just pretty cool. Gold. I mean, yeah, yeah. flipping egg. Yeah. Did, did, and, so is it? Is it kind of quite luxury? Is there? Is there like secret stuff in there as well that you kind of like? So, you know, got a glimpse of. Yeah. So um, the front half of the plane is all tan, and the back half is yeah. blue. So the front half okay. is for I the the president, his family, um, and their you know close advisors, and then the blue half is for military. Um, I think people that are kind of less in the inner circle, so to speak. And then sure. there's also an area for um, media that I think is eight or nine seats. Um, okay. So, you know, you'll get like your CNN, your NBC, ABC, these types of uh, major mainstream media outlets that get a seat and they actually have to pay for their ticket and it's whatever the going rate is plus $1. Um, right. So, yeah, it, and, and it was the whole thing was just fat. Actually, one of the coolest things was we went in, we were in the tan half in front and we went through like the presidential kind of um, living quarters. And then next to that, there was this uh, sort of boardroom with like a long wooden table, you know? And apparently if there was an instance where the president was going to um, address the nation in in a, I don't know, let's say, like, for example, September 11th, 2001, when yep. there was, you know, the terrorist attack, like some something like that, where perhaps the president is in the air on Air Force One, and he has to address the nation, he would do it from there. But two yeah. thing, two interesting things were, um, one, uh, you know, Lance Armstrong was, I, I don't know if he still is, but I think he was maybe a bit of a friend of George W. Bush. Um, they were quite good. They were quite friendly. There's lots of pics and riding bikes together, isn't there? Yeah. Yes. So actually in in there, there was one of these, uh, I think, pro-form Tour de France bikes, which apparently Lance <laughs> gave to right. him so that he could ride on Air Force One in the air. Wow. And then also yeah, at the boardroom <laughs> table, 
you know, the president, they get these sort of like bomber mate, jet, I, Joe, jets. I, I, feel, I feel like I'm there, mate. I feel like it, I'm there. It, it, was, it was unbelievable. Like, it was like a kid in a candy store. So they, the president, they get these like bomber jackets, right? Uh, yeah. That they can wear on on Air Force One. And I, I think some of them are really into it. They think it's super cool. And then some, they don't really wear it so much. But uh, at the time, it was Barack Obama in office. And yeah. uh, his jacket, you know, that said... Mr. Barack Obama was there yep. sitting on the chair. That I thought that pretty was pretty cool. cool. Did you have? Did you kind of sneakily want to just put it on and just take a selfie? You did, didn't you? Really deep down. You know, I I really <laughs> wanted to take pictures, but the security was insane. Like ah. we showed up, and there were all these black suburbans, and I remember kind of getting in a black suburban and going through like three gates, and then I had to take like wallet, keys, phone, and put them in this lead box. Uh, and then went through like another gate and then got on this kind of like John Deere gator and went across the lawn and then finally went into the hangar. Um, but yeah, it was just, the whole thing was, was really cool. I did man. So I managed to take home some of the peanut M&Ms. I took home a (laughs) napkin that said you were on board the presidential aircraft. Uh, what else did I take? Ah, there was also an interesting fact. Uh, Obama is a big fan of um, macadamia nuts. I think, I suppose that makes sense because I think he's from Hawaii originally. Yeah, he is. Of course he is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, And so the the galley, uh, you know, is stocked with snacks. So like they arrange kind of for a meal. And I, I think it's not the meal that you and I get when we're like in economy in the back. Um, (laughs) but then of course the galley's also stocked with snacks and it was full of macadamia nuts. Wow. What, I mean, that, what a section this has been. I mean, randomly question generators opened up (laughs) a a veritable cornucopia. I do feel Joe, that we could have a, another separate podcast just based on your time on air force one, to be honest with that. It was absolutely fantastic. I I know it sounds corny, but I would say it was one of the coolest days of my life. (laughs) And I can clearly tell, I I can't see you because this is a video, this is only audio, but I can tell that Whilst talking to me and describing it, you were wanting to relive it. You were smiling. You were in, yeah. you clearly had a had a blast. Well, which and is I, I was exactly telling my teammates was. about this at the Vuelta, and they were just fascinated. They, yeah, well, it, I've been fascinated. Well, because <laughs> David Dela Cruz was like, "Wow, Air Force One." You know, I think the Spanish president flies on Vueling. <laughs> With uh, hardly any leg room and just yes. carry on, yeah. Oh God. Well, let's 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 rewind a bit. Let's go back to. Um, well, I'm going to ask you your first memories of riding a bike as a kid. I mean, um, can you remember the first bike that you had uh, as, as a youngster? Yeah, you know, uh, I think the first real bike I had was a it was a Gary Fisher hardtail mountain bike. I was probably nice. I don't know ten, twelve years old, somewhere in that age range um and i got quite into it for a while and then it kind of faded away and um then it was really when i was probably 14 15 that i got really into mountain biking i had some friends in school uh particularly one friend who raced mountain bikes and i would go with him and a group of our friends on the weekends and we'd always go exploring new trails and um yeah eventually kind of hanging around enough with him, I went to do my first race. And from there, I was just kind of hooked. Yeah. So would you say, were you, did you, without really knowing it back then, do gravel riding, do you think, on a mountain bike? <laughs> without really knowing it. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, I would say. And, and, and actually, kind of the area I grew up, I would say almost 50% of the roads are not paved. Um, yeah. So even just on the road bike, if, if you went out, it's like there were some really nice gravel roads. And at the time, it wasn't, I, I, I guess we didn't really have a label for it. Now it's labeled. And it's a whole, yeah. uh, it's whole, it's, it's, it's its own niche, but, mm. um, yeah, I, I, and, and really actually until kind of always through junior racing, I, I did almost exclusively mountain bike racing and then I got into cyclocross. Um, and I didn't really start road racing until I was like probably about 18, 19, which I suppose okay. is a bit of a late start, like relative to, um, you know, a lot of other guys that end up being professional on the road. And um, so when, at what point did you kind of realize that, God, I'm, pr- I'm pretty decent at this. At what point did you kind of start to have aspirations uh, of wanting to potentially do it for a living? Um, I would say around that kind of time frame of 18, 19, I started doing more road events. Um, and... I, I was racing mostly with, with older guys, you know, and kind of like the, I don't know, in the US, we'd say like category one, two racing. Um, sure. But it's a lot of guys, you know, in their 20s and 30s. And um, I was winning races locally. And actually, it all accelerated quite fast. I have uh, a good friend from my hometown who, you know, I kind of grew up riding with. Old, old He's much older than me. Um, but actually, just kind of, you know... Uh, I suppose I was just lucky with this, but he was good friends with uh, Bart Nags, who managed um, at the time was called Trek Livestrong, which you okay, know is yep. Axel Marx's team. Yep, and he he lived in Austin uh, when Bart and Lance and uh, Chan McRae and all these guys were. There was kind of a group of American riders that that lived in that area, at least in the off season at the time, and yep. he was never racing professionally like them but he was always kind of riding with them in the winter and knew those guys um and he picked up on that i was you know doing doing well and he sent a note to bart uh about it and then bart sent a message to axel and then much to my surprise axel messaged me and um i kind of it was i guess 2011 uh Axel asked me if I wanted to do some races with the team at the end of the year, just sort of as like a stagiaire. Yeah. Uh, and of course I said, yes. Um, I hadn't really been racing hardly at all on the road at that point. Um, but I took that opportunity. It went well. And um, I did two years there with Axel's team. And yeah. I can really only say great things about the team. You know, it's, it's still around today. Um, and it's a super great program. It was, I, I think if you asked any, and there's a lot of, I mean, I don't know how many guys have gone from Axel's team to the world tour, but it's a there's lot. So, there's so many, isn't there? I mean, look like you got Teo, you got Zhao Almeida, Alex Dowsett. I mean, there are, there are loads, aren't there? It's, it's been it's almost like a sort of a academy, isn't it? But yet, you know, it continues to, and I say this is the greatest respect, it continues to kind of struggle financially. You know, it's fluctuating up and down. From kind of you know, went up to pro Conti, back down to Conti, but you know it's a really in, important team. And I was having a conversation a little while ago with with Sean Kelly, who had his own continental team for for several years, um, and we were discussing the possibility of having like a 
like a transfer system like there is in football in the, in Europe, you know, where, you know, if a, t- if a, if a, if a, if a smaller team, a grassroots kind of team, for want of a better phrase, you know, nurtures talent that gets poached and goes up to the na- next level, that's the natural order of, of, of elite sport in, in anywhere. But there should be some sort of recognition, I feel, for the team that helped give the rider that opportunity, even if it's a kind of a, you know, just a, a, a small kind of nominal fee that might actually help if you, if that accumulates over time, it might actually, you know, in, ensure that that team could continue for the next couple of years. And we're only talking about relatively small amounts of money, but uh, so it, it, it really troubles me when I see a team as important as that, uh, as important as that struggling, it really does frustrate me and as you right, quite rightly say the amount of talent uh, that's coming that's come through there over it's the last incredible. decade is is in, is insane and it, it, yeah. we've got to doff our cap to to how hard um it works i mean what was the environment there like clearly because i'm just looking back obviously we've got ridiculous access to stats and obviously i've got pro pro cycling stats up and you hit the ground running didn't you you really did you, you started racing in kind of uh, kind of may april may and you really hit the ground running so you found your feet immediately yeah, it, I did really well there, um, you know, kind of from early on it, and uh, atmosphere-wise, it was super. I mean, I think if you asked most guys that were in the team, they would tell you that it's the most, and, and not that like we don't enjoy doing what we're doing now, but I think it's the most fun, most guys would tell you it's the most fun they've ever had racing their bike. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's important. That's important. That's so, so important, isn't it? Yeah. And it's, I, I mean, it's a really, it's a great program. It's always been well supported. It, it, we were, you know, for being young guys in a team like that, the access we had in terms of, you know, equipment and training camps and whatever, it was really impressive. Um, and Axel runs a really good program. He's a great guy. Um, like you said, it's, it's a bit sad to see them struggling financially. And it's like, you know, I don't know if, like you said, if it were like football where there's a bit of like transfer payments involved, if, if something like that um, could help support it kind of, it's tricky because now you see actually there's kind of like a fever of signing like young guys, you know, you see world tour team signing guys at like 18, 19 and, almost bypassing that whole system. Um, yeah. Whether that's going to be good or not, I think we're going to need five or six years to kind of see. Um, yeah. Because it, I would say that's a relatively new phenomenon. Um, oh, oh, without a doubt, without a doubt. And so, yeah, I don't... beyond And it kind of like that sort of makes null and void the kind of idea of making like a transfer payment system um i don't know i suppose also you could run like a development team and then almost act as like an agent for finding guys places uh and kind of fund it that way i don't know it's 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 tricky and it's unfortunate because it's such a a great program and it's something that it would be really disappointing to see it go away yeah uh because i think also, if you spoke with a lot of the riders that came through that team, they would tell you they probably wouldn't be where they are today without that opportunity. Yeah. Because in the end, there's lots of talented guys out there. Um, and of course, we all work really hard. Uh, but you also need sometimes 
a little bit of luck on your side and, you know, having things go the right way for you at the right times. Yeah. And I, I think most guys would tell you that that team was one of those things kind of going the right way at the right time and, and help yeah. them get to where they are now. Yeah. Cause I was just, I mean, you need that because there's so many, the sport that we all, that we all love, there's so many there's so many variables. It's, it's a sport like no other. It really is. There's so many kind of impact factors. Um, mm. But what you but what you need as best you can is is an environment in in this in this case a team to kind of steady the ship a little bit, give you as much direction to kind of at least eliminate some of those variables. And if you can eliminate some of those, uh, as well as having a, a nurturing environment, uh, a positive environment, you're kind of halfway there. Whereas if you're in a team that's kind of a bit shaky, you know, um, the first thing that goes is your head. You know, you can be in great physical shape. If you're in a team that hasn't got, you know, that isn't quite right or there's things that are lacking, you can be at a disadvantage straight away, even if you are like, you know, an amazing physical physical specimen. You know, it's, yeah, uh, yeah. You need, I, it's, uh, it's interesting. Well, and it's like you said, like the first thing that goes is your head. But to be honest, I think that's a greater component of of your success in the races than your legs sometimes. You know, it's yeah. like your head can decide where you finish a lot of times. Um, yeah. So it, it's, it's certainly an important part. And I think uh, with Axel's team, it was always keeping it fun and you know, as, as long as you're keep, because in the end, it's like cycling is a really hard sport. And if you're not enjoying it to suffer like that for something that you don't enjoy anyway, like, I don't think the results are going to come. So, no, no, no. uh, I, and I think that's part of the reason you've seen a team like that be so successful is because it's been a, such a fun environment. Yeah. And you absolutely you make friends as well along the way, which are great. Even though you're a common rival teams, it's you can see that camaraderie even through the TV screen. You know, it's a it is wonderful. Now mm. I'm just looking back through, like you clearly like you know you like riding in Italy. Your first victory that I can see was uh, in obviously the uh, Giro Ciclista della Valle d'Aosta um, mm. Mont Blanc, which is one of the outside of of Lavinia and the Baby Giro is one of the key races. And then moving on quickly to just skipping ahead to 2012. You, you won the baby Giro, you know, mm-hmm. um, and two stages along the way. I mean, that must have been, I mean, quite clearly a, an amazing victory for you and, and obviously for the team. I mean, um, what was that whole experience like? And I guess then you were like, yeah, I'm on my way now. This is, and obviously the, you then got picked up by, by Team Sky, didn't you? Yeah. Um, I mean, it was a super experience. I, I, it's funny because actually I would say my, I had sort of a lack of experience because really until then, I still hadn't done that much racing on the road. Um, but, you know, particularly that year, Giro Beal was quite selective, I suppose. Like there was a massive stage uh, that finished on the Gavia. Yeah. And then we had one on Terminillo. Uh, and it was, yeah, it was just really hard racing. So I suppose it kind of came down to legs and climbing and I was there. And um, yeah, it was, and then it was quite, from there, I suppose quite accelerated. Like I, I wanted, I knew that from when I was in Axel's team, because I, I, at the time was sort of going to university and I took some time off, uh, because I, I figured if I have this opportunity to go race with Axel, then maybe this is something I can turn into a career was kind of my thinking in 2011. Right. So my idea was I was going to take off the spring semester from university and just focus on uh, on cycling. 
And then it was kind of going well enough that I never, I never went back and I was having fun. And, um, you know, it was probably somewhat to the chagrin of my parents. I mean, they're both, not that they didn't want me to race my bike. And I think they're, you know, really happy to see me kind of now successfully doing what I dreamed of doing. Um, but you know, I mean, they're both aerospace engineers, three sisters, Right. Two of them are aerospace engineers. One of them's an attorney that, you know, they've all like gotten their degrees and whatever. And I'm kind of, I suppose the black sheep of the family. Uh, <laughs> so a little bit unfair. Well, but you know, for me to tell them like, ah, oh, I'm, I'm just going to focus on cycling. You know, I, I think at the time, maybe they didn't realize that you could really have a career uh, kind of, racing your bike, you know, and it, it was, it was quite foreign to them because I didn't come from a, a family of cyclists. So no one really knew anything. Sure. Um, and yeah, then from 2012, uh, from winning Giro Bio, it kind of accelerated quite quickly. And then I was getting calls from team managers wanting, you know, me to come into the team. And, um, actually to be honest, I didn't really enjoy it. Like, uh, it, for, I, I would say briefly, it kind of went from like, like I said, like being an Axles team, it's, it was so fun and racing your bike and you don't really think of any of it as like a job per se, yeah, because you're just sure. doing what you love doing to kind of, it felt quite heavy, uh, like deciding what team to go to and negotiating contracts and all that. And it was a bit of a turnoff for me. Um, Okay. But but in any case, I yeah, I ended up going to Sky uh, as my first team. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, in the end, like, was it the the best choice for a first team? I don't know. I mean, it, I don't. If I look back on it now, I don't really have anything bad to say about any of the teams that I've been in. I mean, now I've ridden in Sky, EF, and UAE, and. Uh, to be honest, they've all been really good. You know, every team has its kind of things that maybe you wish were a bit better or, or things that you really like and no team's perfect. But um, I feel now at this point, like the world tour level teams are all pretty dialed and, um, you know, there's not a whole lot more you could want. It's it's really, I mean, the, the teams that you've been with, you know, aside from Axel's, three of the, the kind of biggest teams, but also three teams, even from the outside, there were no people in all the teams, no, pretty well, three massively different teams from a cultural perspective. Yeah. But that, I think, also, that gives you, I mean, you're 30 years of age. I mean, go, going through, like, Sky, we know how regimented, we know how cutting edge it was. You know, it's uh, kind of standoffish almost, but they've changed mm. a little bit, but still a team with massive success, massive respect. And then EF, one of the friendliest kind of teams out there, a little bit kind of goofy. I don't know, but but a team that people love. And then UEE are different again, you know, massive success, big budget, but with a really interesting mix of riders. Uh, but again, set within a different kind of cultural background. I think that going through those experiences as a young person growing up, whatever your profession, I think it's only a good thing because you become resilient and you become, a, you know, it helps you kind of adapt. I guess there's, there's the, obviously the the continuum of, of trying to keep at the best level in one of the most competitive sports in the world, one of the most draining, difficult sports in the world. But 
to move. But you had relatively like, two years, wasn't it, with with Sky, and then with five years with EF in the various mm. iterations, and now in year two of your time with UEE. I uh, personally, I think it's a, I think it's good to move around and um, shake yeah. things up a little bit. And and you know, like it, going back to kind of telling my parents that I was not going to continue studying and I, I wanted to be a cyclist. To be honest, looking at it now, I've had this incredible education that you could never buy. Yeah. Uh, and it's like the experiences I've had, um, you know, traveling really all over the world, living in a foreign country, learning a foreign language, um, also networking. You know, I've gotten yeah. to meet people doing all sorts of incredible things that, you know, I suspect um, other riders that when they retire would tell you the same. It's also really valuable, the people that you meet. Because yeah. inevitably, there's a lot of people that have a love for cycling that are doing really interesting things. And they're really interested in you because of what what you're doing, because they love cycling. But it could be in the future that actually, you know, at some point, we all have to stop racing. We can't do it forever. Um, and it could be that, you know, those people are actually valuable resources for you in the future because, you know, it's quite difficult when you're an athlete, you kind of are at the the very top of your game, so to speak, or, or um, the top of your craft at a young age, and then you stop and then you need to find something else to do. And that can be really, I think, quite difficult for a lot of people. Um, but in addition to all these experiences you've had and places you've been, which I feel is in some ways a lot more valuable than an education you might pay for. You yeah. also meet a lot of great people along the way. And um, yeah, I mean, for me, this whole experience, if I look back on it, while it has been, I think in some ways really difficult. Um, I mean, it's not an easy sport and to kind of set yourself up uh, in it, in another country and um, be there from a young age is, is not easy. And it's certainly, if I look at like my peer group and my friends back in the U S um, the kind of uh, work and stick to that I had to kind of put in to be still here doing what I am now um, is probably different than, than what they were doing back home. But uh yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of brought me incredibly rich experiences. And um, I think that's something that, you know, you, you carry with you your whole life. And so I I've, I still love racing my bike and I will plan to continue racing as long as I can. Um, but if I, for example, look back on the last years now, uh, it's been really an incredible experience, um, not only in the racing, but just kind of developing as a human also. Oh, ma oh massively so. And I, I think, um, and as you grow older and look back, when, what what this time, and bear in mind, you've still got, all being well, the vast majority of, of your life ahead of you, but what it will give you is remarkable, deep context, you know, um, which which is... Which is a wonderful, wonderful thing. Well, that that answer um, was fantastic, and to tell you what, um, because time is moving on, I, I want to. I, I did warn you um, about the impending 
quiz of your mm. hometown. So let's I'm kick ready. things off. Uh, it, we're just going to have a little bit of a jingle now. It's time for the Marshall, Virginia hometown quiz. The Marshall quiz. The Marshall quiz. Now it's time. For the Marshall quiz. No expense spared, uh, Joe, on the jingles for this show. I tell you that. It is time for the Marshall quiz. Um, I, I suppose you didn't the- find too much on Marshall. There's not a whole <laughs> lot in Marshall. Well, I I do my I did my research this morning. Um, you know, had I, I always have a loose framework of questions for any of the pods, but generally it's just it just veers off as this one has done. But um, I looked it up, and by Jove, there's not much. There's a paucity of information about uh, Marshall, Virginia. But somehow, Joe, I managed to get four questions. But okay. I've had to go off. I have I've gone on slight tangents. So, okay. Okay. Uh, but. In in the hometown quiz on the Matt Stevens Unplugged podcast, I'm never. It's not about doing people's legs. It's multiple choice. So worst case scenario, you've got a twenty twenty five percent chance of getting it right. Here okay. we go. And if we go with right. probabilities, I'll get one of four right. Of course, of course you will. Yeah, even if yeah, I know nothing. Uh, yeah, I mean, you could. Yeah, you, you could not actually listen to the questions and just guess. And there is a high probability you'd get at least twenty five percent correct. Right. Right. Here we go. Right. <clears throat> Excuse me. Right. Marshall, as you undoubtedly know, was named after John Marshall, who was the fourth Chief Justice of the United States, uh, who, incidentally, has his own coat of arms. Now, which animal, Joe, which animal's head is featured atop a suit of armour helmet on his coat of arms? So uh, John Marshall had a coat of arms. On the coat of arms is an animal's head, which is situated on the helmet of a suit of armour. Which animal was it? Was it A, a lion, B, a bear, C, a stag or a deer, or D, an eagle? I'm going to go with D, an eagle. Is that your final answer? Yes. It's not correct, mate. It was a stag. Oh, really? Sorry about that. Yeah. That's surprising because my second choice is going to be a lion. Sadly, no, it, I invented the rest. It is a stag. If you look at if you click on Wikipedia onto um, John Marshall, it goes through and shows his coat of arms. So I did a bit of deep diving. Question number two. Um, again, as you'll probably know, having hailed from there, Joe, um, Marshall was originally called Salem. Okay. That's right. But indeed, but in which state is another Salem famous? For its for its um, witch trials in ah, 16- I, I actually 1992. know this. Go on then, go away, fire away. Massachusetts. Correct. I'm going to give you two points actually because I I'd, I'd gone for my wife's an expert on the United States and she named all the states around. I said what states near Massachusetts? Maine, New Hampshire, and Vermont. Straight off the top of my head, uh, but correct, Massachusetts. So uh, well done. I'll give you a that one was easy there. though because actually my wife was living there for a number of years. So all right, okay. in Boston. I don't- Okay. All right. So well done. Uh, Two more questions still to go. This one, you can tell I'm scraping the barrel on this one. Um, So please forgive me, Joe. Uh, Question number three. On which road in Marshall is the only branch of McDonald's? Is Is it Whiting Road, B, Winchester Road, C, Old Stockyard Road, or D, Ashby Avenue? These are all roads. In in the town, you you are correct on they are all roads. I 
I don't frequent McDonald's um, when I'm there, but (laughs) (laughs) if, if I remember correctly, I think it's old stockyard road. It's not, but it's right near. It's on Winchester Road. Winchester, ah. Yeah, because okay. you've got the main road, Winchester Road, and then Old Stockyard Road it's just the swings diagonal. off that. That's the That's diagonal it. road, yes. Exactly. Sorry about that. It was a bit a bit tight, that was. Uh, and I did double-check. The address of the McDonald's is a very long number on Winchester Road. Do you right, frequent finally, McDonald's? Every now and again, I'm, I'm going I'm to be totally honest with you, Joe. I, I do like chicken nuggets every now and again not mm. regularly it's a little cheeky treat but i'm a big nugget fan how about you not at all not not so much but actually i was in, enjoying a burger here in nice the other night my wife and i and we were talking about the best burger in nice and then we were talking about the best burger of our life and she was telling <laughs> me that actually at when back when she was working in EF a couple of years ago it was the end of the tour de france and she was there with maybe you know andreas clear and Andreas was okay. like, I need you to do something. And basically it was, you know, they ordered like, I don't know, 30 cheeseburgers from McDonald's. And she said, actually, that was the best hamburger she's ever had. Fair enough. That's a big order. Blimey. Yeah. They probably took extra special care, uh, seeing as it's a big order, hopefully to get them back again. But uh, well, there you go. Well, thanks for going off on a tangent about burgers. I mean, mm. uh, for the final question of the Marshall Virginia quiz is this one. Okay, here we go. Question number four. The last census taken in um, in Marshall was in 2010, and it counted how many inhabitants Wait, of Marshall? Wait, I know, I know. 1,480. Correct, Amanda. You've been doing your research on Wikipedia. Good lad. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I had that as I, I had that as a fourteen eighty, sixteen eighty, eighteen eighty, or twenty eighty. Which that, I that's might have caught you that's up. a good multiple choice though, because it's if you would have gone with ten thousand, it's like no, you're way off. Yeah, no, I I always when I do these, I generally do like um, average kind of mean rainfall of people's hometowns and stuff like that, but always within a couple of millimeters. So you kind of have to think. Um, but but there you go, totting that up, fifty percent, all right. But with a bonus point, so let's seventy five percent, which I think deserves a round of applause. Thank you. No worries at all. Now we've we've been waffling on. This has been, do you know what, mate? It's been an absolute pleasure having a chat with you. But we have hardly even touched upon um, arguably the biggest ride of your career, um, the Giro, of which I had the pleasure of commentating and calling you across the line while I was in uh, in Italy. Um, what that must have been fantastic, mate. You've been knocking on the door for a long time. Another second place on the stage in the Vuelta, but the stage you won in the Giro d'Italia uh, to to Sestolo, wasn't it? Um, yes. Was nothing sort of magnificent. What what was that feeling like? Because it was an attritional, attritional day, which for a lot of GC riders just spelt the end, didn't it? Yeah, it was uh, really pretty atrocious weather all day, and kind of the type of day that. To be honest, when it's like that, it's a lot nicer to be in the breakaway than in the bunch. Um, yeah. I mean, it was a big breakaway, I think. And it, it, eventually it kind of whittled down. But I think initially we were like maybe 25 riders. Um, yeah. But, you know, it's like when it's rainy and left and right. And it's it, it's funny, as the race goes on in a Grand Tour, the stress really goes down. Um and when it's rainy and left and right like that, and it's only stage four, you can be pretty sure that in the bunch, it's going to be pretty stressful. Um, yeah. So it was nice to be out front. And 
Yeah, I I knew, you know, it on paper it wasn't actually a stage that really really suited me perfectly. It wasn't I wouldn't say it was really a mountain stage per se. Um kind of like a hilly up and down hard stage. Yeah. Um and I I sort of knew DeMarkey would have been one of the stronger guys in the breakaway. I mean, he's always kind of good for a, a stage win on some of the hard hard days of grand tours when he's in the breakaway. Um and I also knew he had I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 seconds on me, maybe more, maybe it was like 25 um, overall. So I could sort of use that a little bit to my advantage in that I knew he was thinking of the pink jersey. Um, sure. Because it wasn't clear at first if it was really going to be us racing to win or not. Um, at one point, Astana and then maybe Ineo started to ride behind and the gap came down a bit, but then it came, then it went back out. Um, and then at some point, once we had like eight, nine minutes, I was, you know, kind of knew that even though they would accelerate behind, we were racing for the win. Um, and yeah, everything just kind of went right. Uh, and I felt good on the last climb and got that gap and yeah, it was, it was really nice. It was, it was really a kind of up and down 24 hours because then I crashed out with, uh, a few other guys the next day. Uh, it was quite a dangerous finish stage five. Um, I was with that with Mikael Landa, wasn't it? Yeah. That, Landa that, also was out. Horrible. Um, yeah, it was just like, I don't remember which of my teammates wheel I was on, but they kind of went left at the last minute and I looked up and I went straight into a traffic Island. Um, but so that was, it was a bit disappointing as well because, um, I was sort of sitting on second on GC and we had a, uh, mountain stage the day after and just kind of I I felt really actually pretty confident that I was going to take the pink jersey the next day um, you know because I don't remember exactly how it was but I had like I don't know maybe two or two and a half minutes on Bernal was like the closest big GC name and it was yeah. like not such a hard final climb so I was pretty sure I wasn't going to lose that but pretty sure I could out climb DeMarkey um, so you know it was actually, uh, it's funny. It's like the second Grand Tour. And now in the Vuelta also, I was second on the uh, third or fourth stage. And we looked at, because we had Dela Cruz who was kind of focusing on the GC. And the day before, there was a crash and he broke his frame. So I gave him my bike uh, right. at the, like 4K to go. And I lost time, um, which, you know, just playing the role of teammate. But then looking at it, it was like, actually, if I had stayed in the bunch, then I would have taken the red jersey on that stage. So it's like two God. grand tours in a row now where oh I've had really, God. really oh close uh, close calls where it's like, had not X, Y, or Z happened, then I would have been in the leader's jersey. But, you know, such a cycling. Some You win some, you lose some. And yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, that is the very nature of it. There's so many different kind of permutations that could like, it's almost like the butterfly effect, isn't it? You look back at certain pivotal points where a decision has been made uh, or something unfortunate has happened, which leads you down a completely different path or on a completely separate trajectory. But that's, that's I think, also one of the magnificent elements of this sport is its unpredictable nature. Lots of elements are predictable, of course, but there's so much that isn't. But um, I mean, just to sort of wrap things up, and obviously um, you've been riding now, this is year two of UAE, you've got your, your greatest success, that stage win in, in the Giro. But talk to me what it's like being in the in the squad, because it's a team, again, 
like no other, a different culture, um, a, and but importantly, a team with some real characters that has enjoyed, tr- you know, tr- nothing short of tremendous success over the last couple of years. So, what's it like uh, being in New Team Emirates? Yeah, it's been, um, I have to say, a really good experience for me. When I when I came here, uh, I, I would say it's a team that's really changing a lot and it's in transition. And when I came here, I don't think it was the team that it is now. Um, sure. You know, now they've won the Tour de France the last two years in a row. And um, you can kind of see the team improving. At least I feel that it's improved a lot over the last, I mean, what's it been around since, I guess, four or five years now. Yeah. Um, kind of out of the ashes of Lamprey uh, to what it is now. Um, and yeah, it's 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 a really international bunch. Um, you know, we've got anything from Colombians to Danish guys to, I mean, lots of Italians. Um, it's it's yeah, so quite quite a mix of of guys, and we have you know strong riders for the Grand Tours and the Classics. Um, it's it's really well organized. Um, it's been a good experience for me. I mean, being in such a, a big team, um, a rider like me, it's not that, you know, I, I think I get a f- my fair share of opportunities, but also it's like a lot of times, more often than not, you have more of like a support role um, sure. because we have a lot of, you know, really big names in the team. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's been, it's been good. I've, I've enjoyed it a lot. And and what about the future? Are, are you in a position where you can tell us what's what's going to be going on for 2022 and beyond, or is that not something you know just yet? Yeah, so I think that should I I can tell you I don't think I'll be staying with UAE going forward. Um, okay. Actually, I I can't tell you where I'm going yet, but it no worries. Actually, pretty much this afternoon, I feel like it should be getting wrapped up. So um, wow, yeah. <laughs> uh, so hopefully, you know in this somewhat i mean it's it's also not up to us as riders you know to like announce um of course but hopefully in the somewhat near future that will uh be out there but yeah i mean you know i i don't think uh it's all totally done but it's um pretty much pretty close to being done now and um yeah so that's it's also nice just to kind of wrap that up and um you know it's always a little bit of stress when uh, you're on a contract year and if you change teams and, you know, sorting all that out. So once that's done, that's always, you know, a little bit like a monkey off your back. Wonderful stuff. Well, Joe, it's been an, an absolute pleasure. It's gone like, um, well, it's gone exceptionally quick. And that's always, I think, the sign of of good conversation. And hopefully we'll be able to catch up again soon. But um, for now, mate, I'm going to I'm gonna bid you farewell. And um yeah, for the very last time, thank you. Just thanks very much indeed. It's been a, an absolute pleasure. Um, and I kind of like the fact as well, although we're both kind of cyclists and it's a cycling pod, that we kind of veered off into a different kind of space, which I, I think is really important sometimes because cyclists quite often are looked at as just these kind of one-dimensional athletes. But yeah, but ultimately, and I don't even think we, we scratch the surface really, but Ed, I think hopefully people listen to this or just get to know you a little bit more because that's what this pod's all about. And you've been a diamond, mate. So thank you very much indeed. Thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. 
What a top bloke Joe really is. And as I mentioned earlier, since our recording, Joe has indeed signed with Astana. I really wish him all the best for next season and I hope he settles in quickly with his new teammates. And I'm sure he will. Thanks to Perry Apgwineth for the podcast theme tune and thanks to you for listening. Don't forget to like, subscribe and rate the pod. And why not recommend it to any Americans you might know living in Europe who miss the 24-hour convenience the States has to offer and let them know that the very same convenience exists within this very pod, i.e. you can listen whenever you want. This pod is open all hours. Finally, a massive thanks again to Joe for joining us today. All the best, everyone. Take care and stay safe. Goodbye. Thank you.